0: Hello all, welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast and episode number five of season number two. Today on our show, we are talking about an op-ed in the Tribune on judges and criminal justice reform by an ex-judge no less, a crappy Tribune article on CPD reform. It's made all the news in Chicago, but the article doesn't deliver what it claims to in the title. Namely, it doesn't really have experts quoted. And then we're gonna sit down and with Catherine Large, an intern, third year at the University of Chicago and intern at the Chicago Justice Project. She authored our most recent report titled Transparency and Accountability of the CPD in 1980 from 1980 to 2021. So we're gonna talk to Catherine about that report and go through all of the findings. Not too much of it is gonna be shocking to you, but hey. It's an interesting conversation, nonetheless. Okay, our first segment today, an op-ed. Those who want criminal justice reform should look at lawmakers, not judges. It was written by Gino DeVito, who is a co-founder and partner at the Chicago law firm, Tibet DeVito and Rothstein. He, formerly, he formerly served as the trial judge and as a justice of the Illinois Appellate Court. So first question, is this a shot at uh, Mayor Lightfoot and Superintendent Brown and critics of bail reform? I don't necessarily disagree with the underlying premise. And I've said this for a long time and we're working on a legislative agenda currently, criminal justice reform, policing reform has to be found inside the legislature by law and not just police policy and practice. Police policy can go along in conjunction and partnership with the legislation, but we need legislation to change things. We also need economic reform. So I have for a long time, which is I think I disagree a lot in this op-ed, but I think the underlying piece here he's trying to say is,
1: and Jason Van Dyke is a great example of this. Don't complain when judges sentence people to what
0: they can be sentenced to, what the guidelines of the law calls for. If you want changes, change the law. And that is with the Jason Van Dyke thing. I know there's a lot of uproar in the city about Jason Van Dyke getting out of prison. Anyone who knew anything about the criminal justice system in Illinois, know it's day for day. So as long as he served his time without causing violence or problems, he was gonna serve half his sentence about. That's why he's getting out soon. It's not a surprise. It's not an injustice. It is how the system works. Don't yell at the judge. Yell at the legislators. That said, let's take a closer look and I'll be um, talking about things that I disagree with and things he's very. um, He very dismisses of things and talks about things that judges do have power over that he he alleges that they don't. Well, to the to the op ed. Fortified both by my experience and the specific principles that animate our system for coping with criminal justice. I believe that the judicial aspects of our criminal justice system are not only not broken, but also that they are the best in the world. I'm not so sure they're the best in the world. Sadly, they're probably close to the top, which is a indictment of the world and not so much a compliment to our criminal justice
1: system. That said, there is so much wrong with the Cook County court system. First of all,
0: you get um, appointed, you get slated on the Democratic Party by being able to raise a certain amount of money for the Democratic Party. So politics and fundraising trumps competence when it comes to judges. And I will tell you, here's a story um, now um, that he's long out of office, I can tell it. He made me swear not to tell it. But I had a relationship with Judge Paul Beeble, who was the presiding judge at the criminal court at 26th in California, the main criminal court in Chicago. And he was complaining about how politicians, lawmakers, policymakers, whatever you want to say, were complaining about how slow it was to get murder cases through at 26th in California. And he picks up, it's, it's election season, right? And he picks up the Daily Law Bulletin, And it's got the ratings of the judges
1: running for office. And he goes, look at the idiots that the Democrats are sending me. Black judge rated unqualified by everyone,
0: including the black Cook County bar. Latino judge, Latino candidate for judge rated unqualified by even the Latino bar, but unqualified by everyone, including Latino bar. Other judges, rated unqualified, white judges, unqualified by everyone, including the Cook County Bar, the Latino Bar, the the Chicago Bar, by everyone. But they're winning because they're slated by the Dems, because they're paying them off what campaign contributions, like 25 or 35 or 45 grand, whatever that is.
1: They're winning the slating. So, yeah, we may be among the best. It
0: doesn't mean our system's good. It just means the, all the other ones are worse than us. And it's, it's not good enough to be the best among the crap, right? It'd be really nice to stand out for being the best because you are literally the best. And always, as is with all these systems, there's always reason to, uh, for improvement. So back to the editorial. To determine what reforms those who call the change actually seek, I searched online. Yes, he said that, okay? There I learned that those calling for reform do not take issue with judicial proceedings at all. Rather, their focus is solely on issues over which judges have no control. Okay, what this guy said is he Googled something. Can you believe this? Someone wrote that in an op-ed talking about how great our judges are. An
1: ex-judge who Googled something. That by itself almost makes you want to throw out the whole op-ed. I Googled something,
0: or maybe he bing something or yahooed something. Back to the editorial, reformers issue, reformers issues of concern include mass incarceration, high incarceration rates and rates, prison overcrowding, bail elimination, recidivism, prison abolition, sentencing laws, mandatory minimum sentencing laws, truth and sentencing laws, Jim Crow laws, and
1: juvenile justice reform. Okay the judges have no oversight impact in anything about that
0: the judges don't have a role in mass incarceration high incarceration rates prison overcrowding the elimination of bail part of the reason you have the elimination of bail is just that bail we can't get
1: reasonable reasonable bail set that's by judges So many of those things are impacted by judges,
0: not entirely, but at least partially. And he's trying to say that we have no role in this whatsoever. Um, At least, you know, what he could find binging it or yahooing it. Also, ladies and gentlemen, remember, Cook County is a hornet's nest of corruption in all systems, let alone the justice system. Remember, for those who know who John Verge is and his long reign of terror and torturing suspects. The Cook County State's Attorney was right in those rooms and the judges almost every single time at the initial trials let those cops test a lie and lie all the time and suppressed any attempts to talk about torture until it was forced upon them by the Supreme Court of the state or appellate courts. you talk about disparity in sentences. This guy just seems really naive. Not completely wrong again right? Because we do need to look at the legislature for a lot of things. But a lot of what he's talking about is very naive. There's a much better argument to be made. This was not a good argument. Maybe he was a total patronage, Democratic-slated judge who doesn't know um, anything. He certainly kind of seems that way. The last bit of the the op-ed, in contrast, the role of judges to apply the laws created by the legislature. He's correct about that. Judges have no power to raise funds, and they neither... Write nor revise the law provided by the legislator. In our tripartite, tripartite system, bolstered by constitutional separation of powers and the checks and balances of the three branches of our government, lawmaking is the sole responsibility of a legislative representatives restricted only by constitutional limitations. He's not wrong. However, ladies and gentlemen, there's a difference between how the law is written and how the law lives in the real world, how it's interpreted. That happens every single day. It happens to us in court, in our FOIA lawsuits. Judges interpret laws and do it rather poorly quite often when you look at how many cases get sent back from the appellate court or the Supreme Court. We don't have a death penalty in Illinois because of all the corruption in the process, but how how bad trial court judges at work at ferreting out what was going on in these trials, So, like I said, he's not completely wrong. He's just very naive. Yes, do we need to look at lawmakers? More sure. But to completely absolve the judges of anything is just wrong.
1: All right, our second segment today is an article that's created a lot of
0: consternation and comments from the mayor and the superintendent and I don't think it's very good.
1: I I really, I I wish I could, but it's from Paige Fry and Madeline
0: Buckley of the Tribune on January 31st. And it's titled, Chicago Police Department slow to make reform progress since the shooting of Laquan McDonald and still in need of a culture change, experts say. Now, let's look at who the experts are. That's another problem aren't really experts in here. Is the CPD being slow? Yes. Now, one thing to remember,
1: ladies and gentlemen,
0: consent decrees should be the floor for reform, not the ceiling. The mayor is slow walking the reforms as much as humanly possible because in the end, she really doesn't want all of them or even most of them,
1: in my humble opinion. And so are the police department. That's just not who they are. Brown doesn't want it. Brown likes to talk about it, but he doesn't really like to change. He
0: polices very old school wise. There's no doubt about it. So like I said, I'm just not a huge fan. The article doesn't deliver what it claims to in the headline.
1: So who are the experts? As I remember here, there are two from the civil rights bar Craig Futterman and Sheila Betty, if I got her name right, from
0: Northwestern uh, Bloom. I think it's in the Bloom Law Clinic there. I think they just started up a new center there. Neither Craig is kind of sort of an expert, but not really. I don't know what he knows about consent decrees. Um, And remember, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, maybe it's because the ease of access, but they can't help but talk to lawyers, civil rights lawyers. And they've been doing this forever, and it's a huge
1: mistake. Now, the other expert was an organizer for GAPA. And Nicole Jordan McBride. She is
0: now with the Policing Project, if I got that name right. We've had the head of that on our show early on when we first started. I've got his book on my bookshelf. But a little context about, not necessarily her, but about the Policing Project,
1: the people from ShotSpotter, there's a ShotSpotter official on the Policing
0: Project's board of directors. So just take that for a little context. So those are the experts they have quoted in this article that has experts cited in the title. Craig's been in a long time. Sheila Betty, I don't think he's been in very long. Um, I don't think the GAPA representative who now, um, I, I just don't think she's been in it that long. But what do I know? Nicole Jordan McBride, I wanted to get the name right. She hasn't been in it that long, you know. But these are the people that are the experts. So let's get to it. Oh, a couple things first. 50% of consent decrees as of a few years ago
1: fail, are just complete failures. So there's a lot of, getting back to this point about why it
0: should be the floor and not the ceiling is that even when they get through the consent decrees, half of them fail, the de- department isn't reformed. So that's why it needs to be the floor because you need additional reforms. And the reality is Mayor Lightfoot is not gonna ever deliver those reforms. She's investing you know, 10 million here, 30 million here, and that's great, but she's got a billion dollar TIF fund. Like I've said on this podcast many times before, if you do not change the economics of the city, criminal justice, System reforms aren't really going to mean anything. So let's get to the, the article. Craig in a police accountability expert and law professor at the University of Chicago, pointed to some imperfect but significant changes in policing in the years since McDonald's killing, mostly due to the consent decree and lawsuits that have forced CPD to make changes. Uh, lawsuits? I don't think so, but he's a civil rights lawyer. So what else is he going to say? He's got to pat his own back. Still, the department is largely unwilling to alter its course and submit to public scrutiny said, and a, a failing that continues to hold it back even as it works to meet reform deadlines. That's somewhat true. The police department administration is so broke that I don't think they could, I don't think they have the power internally to make the course change because they just don't have the management. The,
1: they're so broken managerially um, that between that, the alt-rightness of the makeup of the police department as it is, John Kanzara
0: is not an aberration, ladies and gentlemen. He represents a lot more of the police force than people want to think. So that was Foderman. Now, just for a little context in Craig Foderman, ladies and gentlemen, during the time that Chicago Coalition for Police Accountability, which I was part of, that included my organization, First Defense Legal Aid, Community Renewal Society, the Public Defender's Office, uh, Chicago Council, uh, Chicago Council of Lawyers, Chicago Committee, Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and other organizations. The Community Regional Society wrote most of Fair Cops, Fair Cops became the, the uh, creation of COPA, the, the civilian office of police accountability, I think it is, and the deputy public safety inspector general's office, we've had Deborah Witzberg on the show many times. Those two came out of Fair Cop, written by Community and Society, in cooperation with the Chicago Coalition of Police Accountability, and it was my idea, mine, to create the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General. I wanted it an audit office outside of the Inspector General's office. This was almost completely done independent of Craig Futterman and people he was working with. Craig was going around telling people, according to our sources in the communities, and, and the 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 progressive caucus that he was going
1: around and he was writing he was the writer of the ordinance for the progressive caucus and they had to like stop on him I was like no 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 you, you said you'd write something and you wanted us to
0: review it we said we review it all the stuff other stuff we're reviewing that wasn't true he got called out He kept telling these people how he's working with all these community groups and in a meeting with Community Renewal Society, who was actually working with a ton of community groups and churches, they organized churches, they called Craig out to his face about all the groups he said he was working with that he wasn't. Why? Because Community Renewal Society had a lot of groups like those around the table at the time they were talking to Craig. So take how much of his expertise and credibility do you keep when you hear those stories? I don't know. I I generally like Craig personally, but those kind of activities really have um, cut his credibility with me for sure. So new training? Mm -hmm. Is it good? I don't know in the police department. Come on. De-escalation? That's good. Retooling its use of force policies? That was questionable. They had a committee that was going to help the CPD or blah, 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 blah. And... Then the CPD released a new one and had to retract it and put a new one out. Then the group of citizens that we're working with, in which Craig was part of, were complaining. So ha- have there been some gains? There have been some gains on some things. Is it anywhere near enough? Absolutely not. Will it make the change they want? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay, let's get back to the article. Kara Hendrickson, executive director of BPI, here's the last expert. A nonprofit law and policy center said the department's overall pace is complying with the consent decree has been slow. Hendricks negotiated the consent decree when she worked for the Illinois Attorney General. Wonderful. So I guess her working for the Illinois Attorney General's office, great. That's great, and we like that. Why BPI got money to work on police accountability. When all of this was being worked out, the consent decree, the fair cops ordinance, The foundations bypassed a lot of organizations, including mine, who had been working on this issue. This was 2016. So I, CJP started in 07, and I had been working on the issue since 1996. They bypassed us to give money to white-run BPI, right? Business people for the public interest that knew nothing about police accountability whatsoever. This is before Hendrickson was there. They knew nothing, but they got the money but now they're quoted all the time. And like Hendrickson does have she negotiated the consent decree. Okay, that's wonderful. It doesn't make her an expert in policing for sure or police accountability, but it does make someone who has some degree of what's in the um, consent decree and what went in to negotiate it.
1: Listen, ladies and gentlemen, all of these, sh- so all of these changes for the most part, unless the economics change
0: and there's a massive cultural shift in the police department, none of this change. This is, for the most part, all window dressing, right? I don't see the cultural change. I don't see the leadership in the department. I think the department is completely and irrevocably almost broken internally. If Lightfoot was half of the candidate, half of what she campaigned on, if she led, if she was half the mayor that she campaigned, she would be. That's the best way of saying that. She would have brought in the people on the streets after the first couple of days of the George Floyd protest, brought people in instead of talking about creating a whole new public safety agency. She has resoundingly refused to do that. And um, she thinks the the consent decree is the absolute ceiling of reform. This is going to be like a 10-year process. The CPD, 12, 15 years. They're going to get out of it. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, I am
1: predicting absolutely no meaningful change will happen. It's just just my feeling. So this article, I don't know, C-minus? Creates a lot of headlines because it's
0: in the TRIB. Made a few calls to people, but really, I I think it's mostly, if you read the article itself, you'll get mostly retreads of past stories. They recount the Jason Van Dyke a murder of Laquan McDonald in his trial. I mean, it's just, it's mostly cut and paste. That's the way it goes. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna move to our last segment. This is a conversation I had with Catherine Large, who's a third year at the University of Chicago and also uh, an intern at the Chicago Justice Project. She authored our Transparency and Accountability of the CPD 1980 to 2021 report that came out a number of weeks ago. This report basically takes an in-depth look at the CPD transparency and the transparency of the police accountability system in Chicago from 1980 to 2021. And without spoiling anything, I would just um, encourage everyone to, to, to listen for the two major things in this conversation. One is the sustain rate, the rate at which they sustain complaints against officers. And then, towards the end, how 70 how what percentage of those I'm not going to give it away, what percentage of those cases,
1: when there is discipline invoked, get reduced or eliminated completely through the grievance process?
0: It's really um, amazing, and just keep that in mind when you hear the your neighborhood cop or the police union or the superintendent talk about how bad it is to be a cop and how the police aboundability system is so trivial and it just fires anyone for anything. And it just isn't true. And if if, if this report does nothing else then drive that point, um, then we will have achieved something if it just drives home that point. So I'll be back after the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chicago Justice Podcast. Catherine Large, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Of course, no worries.
0: Catherine is a University of Chicago junior, right? Yes. Junior at the University of Chicago. She's also been interning and volunteering with the Chicago Justice Project and just recently authored our report, Transparency and Accountability of the CPD 1980-2021. to And it's basically a look at um the criminal uh police accountability data across the uh systems because the system has changed during the time um but across the systems god for 40 years and we'll talk about what what is what is there and what isn't there and you're not going to be shocked the cpd hid data i know that's going to be a shocking finding for all of you um but all right so let's talk about let's start with um what was missing generally from this? I mean, how much of the data is there? How much is just, you know, in the wind?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was going through all the data that was found by previous uh, CJP interns. And the main finding that I ended up found uh, finding was that a lot of it was missing. Uh, I had to basically piece together the stuff that was there in order to put together and analyze it. Uh, to see what the state sustainability rates were in certain years. A lot of it was missing in just random years all throughout the 40 years that I looked for. Um, and honestly, most of the uh, the organizations that I was looking at. Um, so in order to analyze it, I had to piece it together and do it separately um, to make sure that um, I was getting the sustainability rates for the years that were Um, made public, but there was a lot that was missing, unfortunately.
0: That is not shocking. And just so everyone knows, sustain rate or sustained means that the agency or office of the CPD, as it starts out, and then agencies find enough evidence to sustain the findings. And there are findings short of that, like unsustained, and the police retirement or the police officers tell you, hey, it means we're absolutely innocent. It does not. It just means they didn't find enough evidence to fully sustain the charge, but there was some evidence to it. So, just so um, that caveat. So. Can you give us an idea what kind of sustain rates um, when you're talking about the Office OPS or the Office of Professional Standards, which was an office in the CPD, and then um, the Chicago Police Department, by the way? It's going to be acronym heavy show today, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize for that. IPRA, the Independent Police Review Authority, replaced OPS. COPA, like Citizen Office of Police Accountability, which replaced IPRA, that replaced OPS, and the Bureau of Internal Affairs, which is the CPD's internal office that is supposedly supposed to investigate uh, officers for a variety of things, but mostly criminal acts. So you can give us an idea what the sustained rates were across those agencies over this time?
2: Yeah, for sure. So from the data that was available, I was able to uh, put together some percentages um, from the data that I was able to analyze that was there. Um, so from OPS, from and this was data from 1975 to 1990, uh, I was able to find a sustainability rate of 5.93%, which means that um, from a ratio of 100 cases, only five or around six of them were found sustained. Um, this goes for the rest of the percentages that I find as well. So for IPRA from 2008 to 2017, the sustainability rate was 1.36%. Um, for COPA, from only twenty from 2015 to 2019, the sustainability rate was 7.1%. Um, the IID, which was um, essentially the BIA before it got renamed, from 1998 to 2007, the sustainability rate was 15.62%. And finally, for the case manage, case management system, which is the most recent system that um, basically compiles data from BIA and COPA. Um, that is made public on the CPD website, um, that sustainability rate was 2.53%. Um, overall, uh, obviously they're very, they're low numbers. Um, and I'm not going to get into yet, um, what, um, we could find by those numbers, but, um, overall they, um, are very small (laughs) objectively. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to letting you guys know about, um, what we found in previous reports that were made on the sustainability rates that um, could pertain to these numbers.
0: It's it's amazing how low those numbers are. I don't think the public knows. When you hear in the media, police officers complain about how, how arbitrary the police accountability system is and how um, you can get fired for anything. It's like no, you can't. You know, we as when I was. CJP just started out. It was around the time of the creation of IPRA. Uh, Alana Rosenzweig was the first head of IPRA. We had a reasonable relationship with her. And, you know, she said for a sustained rate, she heard of nothing national above 8%. And so you just look at across the country, if that's the truth, 90% of the complaints against officers get marked as either they don't have enough evidence to prove or just unfounded or truthful or untruthful. I mean, it's really amazing I'm hoping this report pushes back a little bit on the narrative of cops saying, well, you know, we're just we're all you know, we're just being found guilty of stuff all the time that we don't do. And I mean, for that rate, if you were talking two, three, four, five percent sustain rate, how much of that could possibly be illegitimate? Um, versus what is the officers did and got away with that percentage is probably much higher. Okay. Oh, it's so frustrating. So frustrating. Okay, so you looked at reports included in your research, the police accountability task force report, the DOJ, uh, federal civil rights investigation, the consent decrees and some of the updates. Can you talk a little bit about those reports and what you found? For sure,
2: yeah. So going off of those sustainability rates, I went into these reports that um, were previously reporting on um, the efficiency and the effectiveness of uh, the uh, police accountability organizations throughout the years. Um, And of course, when looking at these sustainability rates, we uh, we had to consider, um, of course, that there maybe potentially could be reasons, uh valid reasons for them to be uh found, not sustained um, throughout these, throughout all these cases. But after looking at these reports, it became clear that the variable of uh, ineffectiveness had to come into play because of what was found in these reports. Um, so basically overall, what was found was that. Um, There was first the Police Accountability Task Force report, um, which was released in April of 2016. Uh, That was in response to the Laquan McDonald shooting. um, And it basically found that uh, a fraction of the cases were in fact investigated. And of the ones that were investigated, um, a small percentage were um, found sustained. Um, Overall, this, uh, this report highlighted the fact that Uh, the investigation system was um, incredibly um, ineffective. And going off of this, the Department of Justice made their own report um, regarding the same instances and found essentially the same thing that um, only half of the cases were in fact investigated. And of those, um, many little, uh, very few were in fact uh, found sustained. And in fact, a lot of cases, instead of being investigated were paid off instead um which again could lead to um, cases that could be found sustained leading to an unsustained case um, if, especially if they were not found yes if they were not investigated in the first place um, And then going off of this a consent degree was created in 2019. It was basically an agreement between the city and the Chicago and the, um, and the police department which, Outlined a lot of improvements to go into these systems, um, and going off of this, I looked at independent the most recent independent monitoring report, which was supposed to um, follow up on the um, so in the independent monitoring report in response to the consent decree and was supposed to outline the um, how well the CPD was aligning with the with the new. Um, the new consent decree, um, and it found that only one was fully complied with. Um, of course, this is you know it's very valid that it can take a long time to comply with every single statement in the consent decree. However, after speaking with people um, in in the line of work, uh, it became clear that um, the reform apparatus itself could be could be ineffective, and that it could be leading to a slower rate at which uh, the the consent decree was being complied with. Um, yeah, those are all the reports that I essentially looked at, which made it clear that the variable of ineffectiveness needed to come into play into going into these sustained rates.
0: Two other ones, um, and for our listeners, you can go back either on YouTube or in on the podcast. We've had Deborah Witzberg, the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General on the show a few times in the last like 12, 18 months. And she's talked about the reports they have released. I know you looked at two of them, I believe. So what what did those reports generally say about how well the Chicago Police Department's accountability system was working?
2: Yes. So one that I found was on um, the COPA's duty to report. So there was findings that some um, COPA employees were uncertain as to whether they needed to report findings of misconduct, which is one of the main parts of their job. Um, and there was apparently a miscommunication as to whether they needed to report the finding of misconduct or not, um, which of course could could lead to a case um going uninvestigated um, if that were the case and they were not to report uh, an a happening of misconduct. Um, on the other hand, there was another report which related to the evaluation of the affidavit override rule, um, which Essentially, um, in order for a complaint to be fully investigated, there needed to be an affidavit um, from the person that was um, filing the complaint. Um, and overall, this led to a lot of cases going uninvestigated because uh, many people were uncomfortable with this. Um, and after speaking again with um, more experts in the field, they found that uh, the affidavit um, the affidavit rule was um, a little bit unnecessary, uh, considering that the um, reports were going to be investigated anyways, and that it put an extra burden on the public to, to put an affidavit out there with their name on it.
0: Yeah. So when you look at for the public, when you're or listeners, when you're looking at these sustain rates, remember, especially not so much with OPS, but IPRA for sure, a certain percentage of the uh, complaints filed just disappeared, basically for the most part. They, because no affidavit was signed, they only got this thinnest of reviews. Right? They could only interview. They could only like research down from level one to level two, basically. And if they didn't find corroborating evidence, and then go and seek an override, that was it. The investigation ended. And what Catherine here was talking about was the fact that the deputy inspector general put out a report saying they weren't using the override correctly. And I got that, I got into this particular part of it in 2009 and from 2009 forward, we have been pushing IPRA and then COPA to do more overrides. We thought it just, they couldn't explain why they weren't doing them. And they just kept saying to us, you don't understand, you don't understand, you don't understand. And then finally, the inspector general does a report and says, Oh, by the way, they're not doing that. You're not doing your job. So disgusting, okay. Um, Here is a little process we're gonna talk about now that no one that isn't really in the police accountability system knows about. So most of the misconduct is um, small stuff, not stuff worthy of a police board hearing where they're looking to fire you or like year or two or three year suspension. It's smaller stuff that you may get. You know, you're, you're late for work. You don't have your uh, gun secured or you don't have your handcuffs secured the right way. You're not in uniform the right way. You you know, you were out on sick leave when you weren't sick or injured when you weren't injured or whatever, those smaller things. So a lot of times those claims are handed down. Those The findings are sustained. It's handed down um discipline is handed down it goes to the superintendent he agrees and let's say it's a five-day 10-day 20-day suspension well the little hidden fact is that the officer will serve the suspension but what people don't understand is that officer can then what's called grieve it through the union contract and the um It then has to go, it goes to the city's law department, their labor section, and then they decide whether or not they either, the city wants to cave and just give the officer some portion of their back pay or all the back pay, as it turns out, or go in front of an arbitrator. And I know when Alana Rosenzweig was in charge of IPRA, we heard from her and others at IPRA that the city caved almost all the time, that they caved so much on these grievances. So that basically what ended up happening, you get suspended, let's say, for four weeks, you serve the four weeks, you lose a couple paychecks, but then you grieve it in like three or five or six months later, you get a week back or two weeks back or all four weeks. So basically you just got a paid, partial paid or in a completely paid vacation. Um, So you can talk a little bit more about what um, you found out about the grievance process.
2: For sure. So essentially it was another uh, report by uh, the deputy um, inspector general. And what ended up happening was that there was a finding that 78% of grieved cases ended in the discipline being reduced or eliminated entirely. Meaning that if an officer were to grieve uh, grieve their um, their case, uh, over three fourths of the time, they would have gotten their disciplinary action removed or at least elim- or at least or at least uh, lowered it a little bit. Um, And this is obviously a huge, huge part of understanding the efficacy of uh, the police accountability organizations, because this is the ending outcome of the disciplinary process that uh, that starts with the investigation itself. So um, what also was found in the report was that um, this data itself is not made available to the public which means that we do not have a full understanding of how many um, cases actually do end in discipline.
0: That's right, ladies and gentlemen, think about what Catherine just said. And she's talking about these low sustained rates that she mentioned earlier, under 10%. I think somewhere in the eight was high. I think we got down, the current one is like 2.5 or something. Ladies and gentlemen, the vast majority of those are small things that people that officers serve and then grieve And when they agree with 75% of the time, over 75% of the time, they're getting that misconduct or their suspension reduced or eliminated completely. So if you look just at the sustained rate, as abysmally low as that is, it's basically meaningless when you figure 75% of the time the officer is getting reduced, the misconduct reduced. And when we say that, they were talking about their discipline So say they're suspended two weeks, it may get down to 10 days or a week or or eliminated completely. But here's the big key to this. The eliminated completely is huge because let's say the officer said, um, and we're gonna use Catherine here, and she gets pulled over in a traffic stop and some officer uses abysmal misogynistic language against her and some ethnic issues, right? Against whatever ethnicity Catherine happens to be. And she goes and complains. Well, when they go to look at, hey, does this person have a track record for this? Hey, first of all, we, wait, we we investigated. We think this happened for sure. Let's look back if he has a track record. Because if he does, it may in, it'll increase the discipline. They look back if it's grieved and it goes completely eliminated. It's off the officer's record. It's like they they just remove they just expunge it. It's gone. So if he did this five times before and because through the arbitration the city caved and didn't want to fight it and they remove it completely, it's gone. It can't be used for future discipline. So that's another, that is one of the sneakier parts. We tried for many years to get the Chicago Coalition for Police Accountability to take this on, and it just hasn't happened. Okay, I guess the last agency we're going to talk to is about the police board. And for ladies and gentlemen who want to know what's going on with the police board, go to cpbinfocenter.org. That's our transparency site. You can find their cases and that have been filed with them since 1998 and all the decisions there. And it's updated every month. So you should be able to get access um, to cases going back for what, say 13, 14 years now. Okay, so what, what did you find out about the police board?
2: Yeah, so I went through data um, about the Chicago Police Board decisions made from 2010 to 2020. Um, and essentially they these decisions were made about uh, cases that were already investigated um, by previous organizations um, and found sustained. And from the sustained cases that were um, gone, that went through the Chicago Police Board, um, almost 50% of them.
0: About the decision, and it basically says, well, since the officer didn't try to cover it up, we're, we're, we're less inclined to fire them. <laughs> It's just like, wait a minute, they shot someone illegally that I would think that would be prison. Um, but that's just me. I mean, so I don't want to give the board too much credit. Okay, findings time. So let's let's start with the first one. Missing historical data. We talked about it a little bit. Well, why don't you sum it up for us?
2: For sure. Yeah. So... I mean, this became apparent right at the beginning of doing all this research and putting together the data, is that a lot of it is missing, especially if we're going to have um, true understanding of the efficacy of all these uh, police accountability organizations and how well they're doing their jobs. Um, unfortunately, we do not have the full picture, um, because, um, especially because of the missing grievance procedure data uh, at the end. which. Um, shows the, the final process and what would, what cases do end up in discipline and what cases don't. And because we don't have this data and also all the data from other, um, in all the other years in the beginning um, with the other organizations, um, we, we can't make or the public itself cannot have a full understanding of how well uh, the police are being held accountable.
0: Okay, so next finding, ineffectiveness. I know people in Chicago are going to be too shocked by this. How ineffective is our police accountability system?
2: Yeah, so from what we do know and what was made available, um, especially when reading all these reports, it's clear that the investigative systems are um, incredibly um, ineffective. Um, A lot of cases are not being investigated. Cases are being paid off. and of the cases that are being investigated, uh, the investigative processes themselves are being called into question, um, which is leading to the small sustain sustain rates that we are seeing, um, and as well as the, the large amount of cases um, from the police board that were not ended in discipline, and also the really large number um, in grievance procedure data that have at least completely ex- expunged or um, in some cases just lower the, the disciplinary process at the end.
0: Um, I mean, it was an effective just at the sustain rate. Then when you take three quarters of them getting reduced or eliminated completely on top of the sustain rate, it's mind boggling. All right, last one, the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture?
2: Yeah, so um, what I've been kind of expressing all along is that because of this missing data, we don't really know um, the bigger picture, which is how many cases are actually being ended in discipline, and how many um, are not due to reasons that due to that are due to inefficiencies in the in the accountability systems themselves. And if we don't have this data, we can't tell that bigger picture, and we can't really answer the question of how effective are our police accountability systems. If we don't have this data, we can't give it a fair chance of having it be potentially successful. We can't give it a, we can't um, for sure say how how bad it actually is, potentially. It's just, there's so many variables missing that um, we need to understand.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you um, for sticking around. Thank you to Catherine Large for offering our report and sitting down with us. I'm excited to tell you next week we will be sitting down with I think it's Professor Emeritus at Rutgers University, Todd Clare. He is or Professor Todd Clare, Doctor Todd Clare. Um, he was uh, formerly the head of the American Society of Criminology, among a whole whole list of other accolades. We're going to talk to him about the slide, the slide back where America is facing from going back towards 1980s reagan-esque mass incarceration policies across the country and for those listening uh on tuesday february 1st an article or a column came from cranes greg hines who i really really dislike um and he talks about in there he announces that the republicans are uh, releasing a a anti-crime bill in the Illinois General Assembly. And it's a total slide back. It's 100% what Todd Claire and I, Professor Claire and I, will be talking about next week. Um, and I'll, I'll be going over it in an upcoming show, but it's got like, instead of three strikes, you're out, it's two strikes, you're out. And it's got, got all this anti gun. You sell a gun to a felon, you go to jail, mandatory minimum 10 years. You're caught with a gun as a felon, it's 10 years, mandatory minimum. Aggravated use of a gun, mandatory minimum 10 years. You got all these mandatory minimums. These idiots won't learn, but facts no play. I mean, you're talking basically mostly to a, a Trumpian office, I mean, a, a audience. They just don't care. Okay. Thank you again to Catherine Large. And um, just the saddest state of affairs when you figure out like only at the high rate, 8.5%, the low rate, like 1.5% over the last 40 years of complaints against officers get sustained, and then to the grievance process that whole time, 75% of those have either, over 75% of those have either been reduced um, over time or completely eliminated. Tried for years and years to get the Chicago Police uh, Coalition for Police Accountability to take on the grievance process. I couldn't get anywhere. Um, But that just shows you the media doesn't really cover that that much that even when they're handing down discipline 75% of the time it's getting overturned. Just a sad state of affairs. Okay, we will see you next week and we'll with Professor Todd Clare.